Amen. Revelation 7 tonight. Revelation chapter 7. So what makes this chapter, again, a little unique, even in our study of Revelation, is it's an interlude, if you will, of what's going on of worship down here on earth. And John is going to continue to sort of take us to earth and show us what is going to happen one day, but then he doesn't want us to be too far from what is always going on in heaven, which is the worship of the Lamb. And so we're going to see that once again tonight. But I, like I said, as I was studying and reading this passage of Scripture, I just thought God used it to so encourage me, I couldn't wait to share some of these truths with you tonight as well. So I want you to look at Revelation chapter 7. And we'll just dive into it tonight. After this, John said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been granted or given permission to damage the earth and the sea. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. In the tribulation period, God is going to seal a particular group of his servants. Throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to be introduced to these servants a little bit more. We're going to see what their role is in the tribulation. But the point I want to make tonight is this, a couple things. First of all, the key to these first several verses here in Revelation chapter 7 is before judgment falls once again upon the earth from the Lamb breaking open the seals, God is going to seal His servants. And that is a significant thing. And and I want us to see before we get into this a little bit that everything that God does Satan usually has a counterfeit for it. And so, in this time of the tribulation, God is going to, in a sense, put a mark on his servants, if you will. And yet, we know that later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to be introduced to something called the mark of the beast, where Satan's minion, the Antichrist, is going to use that to, in a sense, Mark others as well. So Satan always has sort of a counterfeit for something that God already does. And so I want to talk for a moment about this seal. Why are they sealed and what is the seal? Well, the sealing is really uh, to secure them throughout the tribulation period. It was a way of marking not only ownership, but also uh, preservation and, and authenticating who these people were. And I don't believe that literally everyone that is in the tribulation is actually going to see this mark. I think God knows who these people are and that they have been sealed And this mark is on their foreheads in some manner. How do we apply this now? Well, right now, in this age, God has sealed all believers. 
just like he sealed and is getting ready to seal this group of his servants during the tribulation period, God has sealed his people today. So I want you to keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to do a little flipping into the word of God tonight. I want you to first go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. Notice what Paul says here. He says that God has sealed us. He has given us a mark for security to confirm and to authenticate. He has sealed us and given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a down payment as a guarantee, as a security, as a pledge to what is to come. Today, we are sealed. We are sealed, the Bible says, through the Holy Spirit. He's the mark, you see, of God in our lives today. And then turn over to the book of Ephesians, to chapter 1. And verse 13, Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 13, notice the process. Paul says, and when you heard the word of truth, no one can come to God except by hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you had to hear it, first of all. Then he says in verse 13, then you had to believe it. So when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then when you believed in Christ, here's what happened. You were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. See, every person who is a true believer, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel, has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Every believer. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is again the down payment, the guarantee, the pledge, the security of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God knows who are his. And we should know that we are his. Because the Bible teaches that if we have the Spirit of God, then we know we are God's child. Because only those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit are truly God's children. And God will mark all of His children with the seal of the Holy Spirit. So our security, if you will, in this age today is knowing that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. That is the seal that God has given us. And I hope tonight that you have that seal. Because when you and I have God living within us, that's all the security we need. That, that is all we need to know is that God dwells within us through His Holy Spirit and He has marked us and He has sealed us until the day of redemption. And because again, we have the Holy Spirit twice in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, Paul says, He's the guarantee. That everything God promised would come to us will come to us one day. He's the guarantee. We don't need any more guarantee in our life that everything God promised to us will come our way other than the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. So, God marks His people today. He does it through the Holy Spirit. That's our seal 
in the tribulation period, God is also going to mark and seal his servants in a way. There he's going to mark them with a mark upon their foreheads. So back to the book of Revelation. Now I heard the number of those who were marked with the seal. Verse 4. They were 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the people of Israel. By the way, the name Israel means God prevails. And one of the things that the book of Revelation is teaching mankind is that God prevails. Man is allowed to have his day now. Man, by God's, you know, uh, sovereign will, is allowed to sort of, you know, do his own thing. But there's going to come a time where God is going to dramatically intervene. He's going to end man's day and begin his day on earth and forever and ever in glory. And you'll see here very clearly that God is marking 144,000 Jews. Why? Because again, we've said, Revelation, I think, has taught us very clearly that the church is now gone. And now God is redirecting His focus back to the nation of Israel. And so He's now focused on Israel and on Jews being saved. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be any Gentiles saved during the tribulation period. But what it does mean is that this is the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week that the prophet Daniel described in his book. And that is now what God is refocusing on. Primarily the nation of Israel. So these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are chosen by God and they are marked with a seal for their protection and security and preservation through the tribulation until God is finished with them. Now here's the encouraging thing for us. Just as we saw that God seals us today and that should be our security, the Holy Spirit within us, here's something else I think that will encourage you. Notice here that now John begins to say that from every tribe in Israel, he's going to mark 12,000 from every tribe. And we shared a couple weeks ago that after 70 AD, all the records and lineage and ancestry of the Israelites had been destroyed when Titus, the Roman emperor, marched into Jerusalem and burned it all down. So from 70 AD, basically Jews have lost their ancestral lineage. Most Jews today have no clue what tribe they belong to. That's all been lost throughout history. But notice something here. Notice something. God knows what tribe they belong to. What is unknown to man is known to God. And the encouraging thing I wanted to share with you out of this is this. God is in the details of life. If God knows who each of these Jews are and what tribe they descended from, and he's keeping this all straight, and he's able to call 12,000 out of this tribe and 12,000, and he gets it all right, it's just again a reminder of how great God is and how much God is in the details of things. That, that's why Jesus even taught to us, listen, he sees 
what we don't see. He sees that sparrow out in the forest that falls to the ground that no one else sees. He knows how many hairs are on our head that, that at least for me, I really don't, that doesn't, but he knows details that we don't even know. And, and would, even if you have hair, are you really going to care exactly how many hairs you have? Maybe you do, I don't know. The point is this. God is in the details of our life And if Jesus said God even has our hairs of our head numbered, then what he's teaching us is this. There are no details. There's nothing so insignificant. There's nothing so trivial. There's nothing so small in anything in our life that God is not aware of or cares about or is concerned about. This great big God. And yet he's always in the finest details of our life. I hope that will encourage you. Because some of you maybe just need to be reminded that He knows. And He knows down to the very minutest detail. Even things that you and I don't know, nor will ever know, maybe, till we get to glory. But He knows. What is unknown to man is known to God. And He knows intimately what you're going through, what you're feeling, what you're dealing with, maybe even more than you do. And definitely more than most times we think God does. And we see that here as He lists the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. Verse 9 then. After these things, after God took the time before judgment fell, To seal his servants, John takes us back up to heaven. Because he never wants us, again, to get so preoccupied with what's going on on earth that we forget about the worship of the one who is in heaven. And so he says, after these things I looked and here was an enormous crowd, a very large multitude that no one could count, made up again of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm trees, or palm branches, excuse me, in their hands. First of all, we're going to see here in a moment where all these people from every tribe, nation, dialect, and language, where are they coming from? We're going to see, they come out of the great tribulation. And so we see that even in the midst of such darkness and the judgment of God, God's still saving people. People are still coming to Him from all over the world. And and I want you to get the correlation and the connection between these 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are being called and sealed over here, and now these people who are coming out of the tribulation over here, standing before the throne because they've been martyred or killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. There's a connection there. That's why He puts them in the same chapter. But I want you to see this. Notice in verse 9 that even these coming out of this horrendous period of time, when they get to heaven, are dressed in long white robes, emblems of righteousness. 
And they carried palm branches, emblems of victory. The palm branch was an emblem of victory. That's why even in the Gospels, when Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem that week before He was crucified, the people of Israel were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving palm branches because to them, this was the King coming in victory. You see, palm branches. Emblems of victory. They have overcome, as we sang about tonight, through the blood of the Lamb. And so they stand there in heaven. Notice, they were shouting out. Literally, croaking is what the original says. Not croaking as in... They they were crying out with a loud voice. That's the kind of worship that's going to be in heaven. And here's what they were saying in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God. Deliverance. And and the word salvation isn't, again, just talking about the time that you and I turn our hearts to Christ. The word salvation literally means deliverance, preservation, and even safety. So they're saying, you know, we were delivered out of the great tribute. We were preserved we, we were as safe as, as we could be through all the things that were going on because of our God. Our God is the source and origin of all salvation. Whether it's spiritual salvation, physical deliverance, whatever it is, the rescue of God is always because He's the source and origin of it. And then they say to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the worship of God always centers around that there's a throne. That there's a throne in heaven and that there's someone seated on that throne who's in control. That's what it always goes back to. That's what John always wants to remind us of. There is this divine seat of authority and power in the universe. It has always been there. He's always been there. He's always been in control. He's always been in charge. And he is moving this world towards worldwide acknowledgement of the Lamb. To reverence and respect Jesus Christ like He is in heaven one day on earth. Verse 11, all the angels stood there ready and prepared in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshipped God. Here is again a description that they were overcome. Even the angels... Even the angels who have been in heaven in the presence of God. And yet, as they begin to see His plan, even in the tribulation period unfold, they are overcome with such awe of their God that they literally fall down prostrate in front of Him and they kneel down as an expression of profound reverence and respect before Him. As we said, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ is about getting an accurate picture, an accurate representation of who Jesus Christ is. And when people are confronted with who Jesus Christ really is, there should be a response of reverence and respect for who He is. And one day, even though He's not reverenced and respected like He is in heaven, one day He will be on this earth. And that's what God is moving this world to. So, notice, the angels who are worshiping say, Amen, 
praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. A sevenfold blessing, a blessing, if you will, or praise or worship of completeness. And again, don't forget as you read this, that these aren't things that angels or or anyone else is giving to God. These are things that they are ascribing to God. In other words, they're acknowledging that this already is God or that these things are already due Him because of who He is. We never, as any part of His creation, add anything to God. He is already perfect in who He is. He he doesn't need anything. He is the self-existent one. That's what the name Jehovah describing God means the self-existing one. He's the only one in the universe that doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. So again, we don't, even in our worship, we're not giving anything to God. We're not adding anything to the person of God. We are simply acknowledging or ascribing who or what he already is. And that's exactly what they do here. He deserves praise. He deserves glory. In Him is all wisdom. He should be thanked all the time. He should be honored, reverenced. His power should be acknowledged. His strength should be acknowledged. And then again, at the beginning and the end, Amen. May it be so. Then, verse 13, one of the elders asked me, These dressed in these long white robes, who are they and where have they come from? Now, he knew. He wants John to to know as well or to to confirm. So I said to him, my Lord, you know the answer. Then he said to me, you're right. These are the ones who have come, literally in the Greek, are continually coming out of the great tribulation. And the word the is emphatic in the original Greek as well. In other words, this isn't just a great tribulation. This is the great tribulation. That seven-year period after the rapture and before the millennial kingdom starts. They're coming out of the great tribulation. Yes. Again, even in this awful time, souls are coming to Christ in droves, filling up heaven with their worship and praise from every tribe, every people group, every nation, every language, which means that even though this judgment of God in the great tribulation is worldwide, so is the salvation of souls worldwide as well. And then he says, they have washed, verse 14, don't miss this. We're going to stay here for a minute. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way we can be made white, clean, is to wash ourselves in the blood of the Lamb. That's it. And and it is an interesting picture that I'm washed in blood and yet I come out white. Yeah, here's why. Because when we come to God, we come to a God who is willing to exchange things. In other words, we come to God if we're willing to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we're sinners. We we then give God all this sin and all this mess and all this yuck. And He not only takes that away, but gives us in exchange for that 
His righteousness. That's a pretty good exchange. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's a pretty good exchange. I give God my sin. He gives me His righteousness. Keep your finger there. In fact, mark the book of Isaiah, because we're going to go back to Isaiah later on too, but go back to the book of Isaiah for just a minute, to Isaiah chapter 1. Very familiar verse, but I want you to see this, and if you don't know where this verse is, or you've never marked this verse in your Bible or whatever, now would be a great time to do it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Here again in the Old Testament, the great exchange. The prophet Isaiah says, through God... Come now, even to the children of Israel. Let's consider your options, says the Lord. Though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become white like snow. Though they are as easy to see as the color scarlet, you can become white like wool. There's the great exchange. I give God my sin. He makes me white as snow. That's pretty good exchange, isn't it? Well, guess what? That great exchange with God not only happens at salvation. That great exchange with this kind of God that is revealed in the Bible can happen even throughout our lives as Christians. I want to show you something. Go over to the book of Isaiah chapter 61 for a moment. Again, keep, keep Isaiah marked because later on after we go back to Revelation, we're going to come back to Isaiah tonight to end. So go over to Isaiah chapter 61 right now. I just want to set this up. You remember the story, I think, in the Gospels where Jesus is a young boy. He goes into the temple. He has the opportunity to go up, to open up the scroll of the Old Testament, and he begins teaching and reading from the prophet Isaiah. And if you go back to the Gospels, you'll see that the portion he reads is this portion here. He stands up in the synagogue and he begins to read isaiah 61 he says the spirit of the sovereign lord is upon me he's he's actually talking about his first coming which is what's described here at the beginning in isaiah 61 because the lord has chosen me he has commissioned me to encourage the poor to help the brokenhearted to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners to announce the year when the lord will show his favor and if you notice back in the gospels he then shuts the scroll at that point Because those verses up to that point, those are the verses that describe his first coming. And yet you'll notice right in the middle of verse 2, then there is a break in Isaiah 61 2 between his first coming and his second coming. Because notice then, and and, and can I just say, This is why even Jews to this day and even Jews in Jesus' day had a hard time trying to understand and reconciling the difference between his first coming and second coming or even if there was a difference or if everything was going to take place at the same time because they weren't willing to go outside of maybe places like Isaiah to other places where it was clear that there would be a gap of time between his first coming and his second coming. But notice what it says in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. The day when our God will seek vengeance. See, that's not what happened the first time Christ came. So now this begins to describe the second coming. 
But notice what happens even when God is seeking vengeance. Even then, He will console all who mourn. Now notice verse 3. He will also strengthen those who mourn in Zion. And they'll have a lot to mourn about in Israel. And here's the great exchange. He will give those who, instead of putting ashes on their head, He will give them a turban. That's literally what the Hebrew means. Some of, some of your translations may have the word beauty, and, and that's part of it, but really, literally, it's a beautiful headpiece. Because they would put ashes on their head when they were mourning and grieving. And he's saying, hey, no, your God wants to get rid of the ashes and put a beautiful headpiece on you, a turban. Instead of ashes, instead of mourning, He wants to give you oil symbolizing joy. Instead of discouragement, He wants to exchange that for a garment that symbolizes praise. He wants to call you out and make you oaks of righteousness. Trees planted by the Lord to reveal His splendor. Now I want you to to concentrate on verse 3. Because I want you to see the principle of the great exchange that God is willing to do in every life. God says, look, if you're willing to humble yourself and bring this to me, I'll give you this in exchange for that. So don't hold on to whatever it is. Bring bring whatever you have right now to God and let Him exchange it for something much better than what you're carrying around. Because it's through our relationship with God that we can get these great exchanges all through our lives. Not just when we come to Christ and give Him our sin and get back His righteousness, but even through our lives. We can give Him something that is of less value and get back something of such greater value in return. God is all about the great exchanges that are far to our advantage and benefit over sometimes what we're carrying around. And so God is just saying to His people tonight, bring that to me. Turn that over to me. Give that to me and let me give you something much better in return. I am the God of the great exchange. Back to the book of Revelation. These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the the Lamb. Verse 15. For this reason, Because they have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. They obviously are willing servants. And the Bible says they serve Him day and night in His temple. Heaven is a place of privileged service. And notice the Bible says they serve Him day and night. Because guys, once we get there, we are free from the limitations that prevent us from serving the Lord like we should and like we maybe even want to down here on earth. We won't have those limitations anymore. We don't need to sleep. We'll be serving God day and night throughout eternity. By the way, this word serve means to worship God through ministry. See, there's many different ways to worship God. One obvious way to worship God is by obedience. Another way to worship God is through praise and singing. Another way to worship God is through ministry and service. And so the Bible is simply teaching that heaven and and the kingdom will be a place where 
his servants still serve him. And then it goes on to say, and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. Literally in the original, he will spread his tent over them. Basically, here's the picture. And I'm not even a camper, but this even excites me. It basically says Jesus himself will set up his tent and camp with you. That's the kind of God he is. See, he he isn't even going to be the kind of God in heaven. It's like, where's God? Well, God's going to settle down right in the midst of his people. See, that, that's what, can I just say, this is one of the things, talk about man and his pride. I'm going to say this about pastors because I am one. It really bothers me when pastors somehow get to the point where they feel like they're so elevated and stuff that they don't have time to be around the sheep anymore. Really? Because Jesus... <laughs> The Lord of glory says, I'll camp out with you. I'll hang out with you. I'll settle down and I'll be right there with you. I'm not going to be aloof even as God and somewhere over here where you can never see me and you can never find me and you can never talk to me. I'm going to personally be right there with you the whole time. I don't know about you, but that sort of excites me. And not only is there not going to be any limitations in heaven, there's not going to be any affliction or suffering in heaven. Because in verse 16, he says, they will never go hungry. They will never be thirsty again. The sun will not beat down on them, nor will there be any burning heat. And see, this was especially, again, uh, important for those coming out of the great tribulation because of all the judgments. Many of them were going hungry. Many of them were going thirsty. There was going to be, as we're going to see, a great famine and, and, and a, a loss of water to drink. And the, 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 the heat of the sun was going to be more intense than it ever has been. And so, specifically, he's saying, no more suffering, no more affliction, no more limitations. And then notice verse 17, because the Lamb is in the middle of the throne and He will shepherd them. He will take care of them. He will take care of us throughout all of eternity. See, his shepherding ministry doesn't end when we get to heaven. Just because you and I get to heaven doesn't mean, again, well, God's got, you know, we don't need, no. He's going to take care of us even throughout eternity. Notice one of the things he's going to do. He's going to lead us, guide us, the Bible says. See, I think sometimes we get this warped idea that when we get to heaven, you know, we're, no. There's going to be a lot of stuff that, that, you know, we're still going to learn and we're still going to grow. And, and we're still going to have experiences like, wow, I, I, thanks God for showing me that. I, I didn't know that. See, that's why when, when, when Christians go, what are we going to do for all of eternity? Oh, my goodness. There's going to be a lot to do. Trust me. You'll never get bored in heaven. You'll never get bored in the kingdom. And then notice this. He's going to lead us to springs of living water. Fountains of real, of the highest quality of water that you and I could ever experience. And then notice this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God. God's not going to send some angel 
to sit there and personally comfort and console us when we get to heaven, either from the tribulation or from whatever. When we enter heaven, the Bible teaches me that God Himself will personally minister to me and comfort me and console me. That's the kind of God He is. So with that, one more place. Go back to the book of Isaiah to chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. I want to begin in verse 7 of Isaiah 25. Verse 7 of Isaiah 25 is talking about death. The shroud of death that covers all people. And he says, on this mountain, speaking of this time when the kingdom comes, he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations, and he will swallow up death permanently. He will literally engulf death. That which swallows everybody up now will now be engulfed by God. He will bring dying to an end perpetually. No more dying. And then the sovereign Lord. Can I just say that means no one greater. There's no one greater than the sovereign Lord. Those words put together basically means, you realize those words mean there's no one greater. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from each and every face. Think of that. Again, he's not going to send an angel to do it. He's not going to, he's not going to send one of his servants coming out of the great tribulation to do it. No, the sovereign Lord, no one greater is going to take the time to wipe away tears from our faces when we get to glory. And then notice, and remove, literally take away once and for all the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Now here's what that means. The word disgrace means reproach, scorn. To be considered of little worth, to be despised. In other words, today, as long as God's people are on this earth, most of the people on this earth think very little of us. Very little. And yet what God is saying is one day when things are reversed and I am king on this earth, my people will be honored and respected like nobody else. My people, they will be the ones for once and for all, those who thought very little of them, who reproached them, who scorned them because of them following me, and thought, why are you wasting your life going after Jesus Christ? Jesus says, I will honor you like nobody's business one day. That's what part of what David meant when he says, I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. You will be sitting down at Messiah's feast while they're sent away for all of eternity from my presence. It's going to reverse one day, my friends. This is the hope and promise of God. In fact, notice he says, indeed, if you ever doubt it, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the self-existing one, has announced it. It means he's declared it. He spoke it. He promised it. It will happen. So before we close, I know I've run over a couple minutes. I've got to share this. In light of how much we appreciate our hospitality ministry and all the good food we have here. And many times some of you ask me, will we be eating in the kingdom and in heaven? Oh, you better believe we will. 
So I want to show you this real quick. Regina, now look at this. This, this yeah, here we Look what it says. Verse six. Just go up a couple verses before. The Lord who commands armies will hold a banquet, a Messiah's feast for all the nations on this mountain. And at this banquet, there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. God's going to throw himself a potluck. So see, when we have when we have potlucks down here, we're just preparing ourselves for the great potluck in heaven one day. Because God's going to bring it on. Oh, there's more I could say, but we need to close. I hope you'll come back next week because we'll dive back into Revelation chapter 8. I hope you'll be encouraged tonight to know this. God has sealed you with His Holy Spirit. God is in the details of your life. He knows what is unknown to man. And this God, this God is in the business of great exchanges. He has exchanged our sin, our guilt, and our shame for His righteousness to be His heir. And He is also willing to exchange anything else for something far more valuable and far greater. Give it over to God. Let Him provide you this great exchange as the God of the great exchange. God, we thank You for being such a a God, Lord, that as, as we think about You, Your humility, Your willingness one day to personally minister, to comfort, to console all of us, to wipe away the tears from our eyes one day. You're not going to send an angel to do that. You're not going to send another servant to do that. You're going to personally do that. You're going to personally set up your tent and camp with us for all of eternity. Because part of the joy of eternity is not just being in heaven. The greatest thing about eternity is we get to be with Jesus. We get to touch the face of the one who created us. So God, I pray tonight that once again we would leave here in awe of you. And that God, that Revelation chapter 7 would just inspire us to worship you more and more. To serve you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.